Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of Zechariah. As we've been looking at Nehemiah, I mentioned to you that we would try to weave a bit of Zechariah in. And then we may get some Nehemiah before the night is over. The next section of Nehemiah is going to reintroduce us to Ezra. Because Ezra and Nehemiah overlap. So if you're in Zechariah 2, this is a fascinating bit of vision that Zechariah has. The first part of Zechariah is a series of short visions that he describes, but this one, I think, gives us a wonderful indication of how it is that anybody is saved. In the large macro sense, Zechariah talks about God having to clean up our mess for us, that that's the only way we can be saved. But within its context, it's during the time that Zerubbabel is starting to rebuild the temple, laying the plumb line to the temple and starting to rebuild it. So the second imagery that Zechariah is going to see is God speaking about Zerubbabel not only starting the work, but that he's going to end the work. So the whole of chapter 3 and chapter 4 really all has to do with Israel and the temple. And so chapter 2, as we read it, is about Joshua being cleaned up by God, being reestablished as the high priest by God. It is a demonstration of how people get saved. I have heard David Morris on several occasions preach this chapter as a salvation message. But it's really about the fact that Joshua is a representative of Israel nationally because he's high priest. He was high priest under Ezra. He continued to be high priest leading into the early times of Nehemiah. And he's mentioned several times by the names Jeshua and Joshua. And so the image that Zechariah sees, the vision that he sees, is the high priest of Israel standing before God and then being accused by Satan. And there's nothing in the text that tells you that anything Satan was accusing him of was wrong. In fact, what you read is that he was indeed filthy. So he's not only filthy and in filthy garments, but he's also being accused by Satan. And it's in that situation that God does what only God can do and answers Satan on Joshua's behalf and takes away his filthy garments and gives him clean priestly garments, and puts a clean turban on his head, and establishes him as the high priest. But then something really interesting happens, as if that weren't interesting enough. Then God extends that concept of salvation into the righteous branch who's to come. And he tells Joshua, you and the Levites and those that sit with you who work in the temple... You're just a figure. You're just a type. You're just, the word in the NASB is, you're a symbol of what's going to happen. And then God predicts the coming of the righteous branch. And so it's Christological. Christ becomes the basis on which people are cleaned up and saved. And all of that is seen in vision by Zechariah as a way of encouraging Israel that God has not given up on them. The temple is going to be completed. God is in it. God is for them. And God is ultimately going to forgive them as a group. And the language, as you're going to see tonight, which kind of plays into some of the stuff we were talking about at men's group last night, God says he's going to do it for the nation of Israel in a day, which is very much like the Isaiah language of a nation born in a day. So that's what we're going to look at for the first part of the evening. And then if there's time left, we'll go to Nehemiah. 
and continue the narrative of Nehemiah. Now that the temple's rebuilt, now that the walls are rebuilt, Ezra is going to stand on a platform that was built specifically for Ezra, and he's going to read out the books of Moses to the congregation who stand on their feet the whole time, and then later he teaches them the book of the law a minimum of three hours a day. And the other three hours after that, they're confessing their sins to God. Six hours a day, they nationally are repenting and praying toward God. And I don't ever want to hear anybody ever complain again that my sermons are too long. You're sitting in air conditioning, sitting, not standing, sitting in comfy chairs. I've made it as nice for you as I can make it. I'm a good pastor. See there. I could insist that you stand up the whole time that I read the first five books of the Bible, and I'd be biblical in doing so. So maybe we'll get a chance to go look at that tonight. All right, so we're in Zechariah 2, the continuation of God demonstrating his kindness, his goodness to national Israel represented by their high priest who then God is going to say is a symbol of the ultimate high priest to come. Zechariah chapter 3, that's where I want to be. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The word Satan, do you know what the word Satan means? The Hebrew word Satan, what does it mean? Accuser. So why is Satan standing there accusing him? Because that's who he is. That's what he does. Satan accused him because that's what his name means, the accuser. Also notice that there's this character, the angel of the Lord. The word angel just means the messenger or the one speaking for the Lord. And in a moment, you're going to get the impression that this might be a Christophany. I'm going to go the rest of the way and say, I believe it is a Christophany. Because he's going to speak first person as God, and yet he's going to make reference to the God of the whole earth. And so the only one who could speak as God for God would be God. Therefore, I believe this is a Christophany in the Old Testament. So he showed me Joshua the high priest who was an actual living being at that point in time. He was the high priest for Israel. They were reestablishing the temple. It's necessary that their high priest be ceremonially clean. But he's been out of Jerusalem. He's been in Babylon. He's been in Persia. He's gone through all of that, which would make him ceremonially unclean. And how is he going to make himself clean, righteous, holy, sanctified again so that he can continue the service of God in the temple of God? How is he ever going to get clean enough again? There's no amount of water or soap that's, that's going to clean him up again because he's been defiled. So God has to clean him up. But meanwhile, he's standing there in his filth with Satan standing there accusing him. Anybody here want to testify that you've been there at some point in your life? Standing there in your filth knowing that Satan, the one who accuses the brethren day and night, you know he's got you dead to rights. You know that every accusation he's leveling toward God is accurate. Well, that's kind of where Joshua is standing right now. And the Lord said to Satan, so this is the angel of the Lord doing the speaking, and yet he's referred to as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, he's referred to as Yahweh, but he said to Satan, the Lord, Yahweh, rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And is this not Joshua as the type, the symbol, the embodiment of Israel, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So in other words, Satan standing there before God and Joshua, accusing Joshua, trying to condemn Joshua, and God says, if I didn't do something, he's going to burn. 
but I will pluck him out of the fire, bring him to myself, save him, redeem him. Here's how he does it. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and he was standing before the angel. I still remember the exact example that David Morris used when he preached that text. Do any of you remember it? He said he was working out behind his house and that he had just a wooden slat over his septic tank. And he backed up and stepped on the slat and it broke and he fell into it. And he said, I was filthy. He said, that's the word. He said, the Hebrew word that's being used here isn't just he was dirty. It's he was defiled. He was filthy. So he's standing there in his filthy rags. And he's standing there before the angel of the Lord. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, this is the angel of the Lord saying this, remove the filthy garments from him. And then again he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Okay, a couple of words need to be picked at here. First off, only the angel of the Lord, God himself, says, I have taken away your sin. I have removed your iniquity. Well, an angel can't do that. Only part of the Godhead could do that. That's one of the reasons I say this is a Christophany. See, I have taken away your iniquity. I have taken it away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. The NASB says festal. It really means purified, clean, white robes. The same idea is picked up in the book of Revelation chapter 19, when it says that we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we arrive there, we're given white robes, clean and white, which we're then told is the righteousness of the saints. So here you see that exchange. You see the angel of the Lord say, I have removed your filthiness from you. And behold, I'm clothing you in the white robes which is, according to Revelation, righteousness, the righteousness of the saints, which only makes sense. If the filthy robes are symbolic of sin, then the clean white robes would be symbolic of righteousness. So how exactly did Joshua move from his filthiness to righteousness? What did Joshua do to accomplish that? Nothing. How is it that only Sandy knew that answer? Nothing. He did nothing. This was an act of grace, and it is an act of God being consistent to his own declaration that he was going to be worshipped by the people he chose, the people he elected, Israel nationally in this case, and to guarantee that his worship would continue at Jerusalem, the place where he chose to place his name, in order to accomplish all that for himself, he gave Joshua, the high priest of Israel, clothes that represented righteousness and took away his trespass and his sin from him. And he was the recipient. God did all that. Yes, sir. He didn't even take off his own clothes. Yeah, exactly. Who took off the clothes for him. Yeah. So that's why I hesitated. It's like, sure, he could take off his own clothes, but no. No. Well, not if, not if those clothes are his sin, he can't take off his own sin. And he can't clothe himself in righteousness. It has to be done by someone else for him. And notice the declaration of it being done is said to him by the angel of the Lord, who, if that is a Christophany, is yet again a demonstration of how we're saved. Verse 5, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. One of the most important pieces of clothing that the high priest would wear, the white turban that had the gold plate that said holiness to the Lord. He had to have that turban on before he could go before God in the Holy of Holies. Therefore, he says, let him have a clean turban on his head, representing, I think, the cleanliness of the high priest now, who's dressed in righteousness, who's serving between God and Israel, 
with that clean turban and that plate, holiness to the Lord on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, that would be the temple, and you will also have charge of my courts, those are all the surrounding areas around the temple, the court of the Gentiles, the various different courts, in other words, you're going to have charge of the temple completely, and I will grant you access among these who are standing. The NASB says those who are standing here, I think that's among those who have standing. Because in a moment, he's going to mention them again. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. I believe that would be a reference to the Levites, to the others that serve in the temple, those that are serving with him, that are under him. Those that are sitting with you, indeed, they are men. They're just men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant the branch. In other words, he's saying, you men who are acting as Levites, who are acting as priests, who are acting as the high priest, you're not the know-all and end-all of what I'm actually doing. You're a type. You're a shadow. You are foreshadowing the Christ to come. You're foreshadowing the righteous branch who will actually take away sin the same way that he just demonstrated with Joshua. And so he says, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone there are seven eyes. Now in a little while that stone's going to come up again, and it's going to be the eyes of God that go throughout the world that see everything. But it's represented as a stone. So who's the stone that the builders rejected who sees the whole world and see you, you again get this, this branch language, this stone language. It's all referring to Christ. And notice, by the way, that Joshua, the high priest, has that name, Jehoshua. Jesus, the Greek name is Aesus. We just say Jesus. His Hebrew name would have been Jehoshua. And so again, we get these connections. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, and on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. So again, here's the Lord of hosts being talked about, but the person talking about him is the messenger of the Lord. So it's two different people who are both referred to as the Lord, who are both speaking as God. So more evidence that I believe it's a Christophany. So behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Okay, so now we're obviously not just talking about Joshua. Now you can see why I keep saying Joshua is a representative of the whole of the nation of Israel because the same way that God removed the uncleanness of Joshua and gave him righteousness as high priest representing and standing in the place of Israel then God says I'm going to bring my righteous branch I'm going to bring that stone with seven eyes and then in one day I'm going to remove the iniquity of that land completely in one day. So what is God's further intention for Israel? Does that kind of give you some idea? Now, by the way, are we able to say that at this point, God has actually done that? Can you look at Israel today and say, God has removed all their iniquity? No. No. What state are they in right now? We talked about it last night at men's group again. Romans 11, their hearts are hardened. And because they've been judicially blinded and their hearts are hardened, for that reason, God has brought the Gentiles in to make Israel jealous. 
But then after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved, according to what Paul writes. And then he describes what they're like. He says, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, for the sake of the believing Gentiles. And then he says, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. So the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still good promises because it was God that made them, and he made them unilaterally. So Israel is in a blinded, unbelieving state, which they would have to be if God is suddenly going to bring them to a spiritual awakeness in one day. They'd have to be blinded in order for this to be accomplished. And so God says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, there's going to be so much wine and so much food. It's going to be the land of milk and honey again. And you'll be inviting your neighbors to come over and share with you. Okay, has that happened yet? Okay, so let's drill down on this. Did Zechariah actually see that? Is that the vision of Zechariah? Is that what he describes? Yeah, we just read it. Okay. Do you believe that Zechariah saw this vision from God? Yeah, that's why it's in the Bible. We have to say, yeah, he did. Okay. So God has made a promise here to Israel of their future national cleanliness, that he is going to take away their sin, and he's going to do it so quickly. He's going to clean up the whole nation in a day. Do you believe that God said that? Okay, so far God hasn't done it. Is he going to? Okay, then can we say that God is done with Israel? No. No. And here again we find another example of God declaring his own faithfulness to national Israel. National unbelieving Israel. Not the part of Israel that made up the church. Not those that followed Christ. Those that are enemies of the gospel who are nevertheless beloved by God because of the election's sake and promises God made to the forefathers. And here Zechariah says the same thing that Paul picks up in Romans 11. So it's a pretty consistent testimony. Therefore, I would argue that our theology has to say the same thing. And if we're going to say that God is done with Israel or the church is now Israel or something like that, then we're not saying what the Bible says. Now it's going to get a little more confusing, and I have really thought long and hard today about maybe drawing this on the board for you. But my artwork is so bad that if I did try to draw it on the board, it would be like hieroglyphics. You would have to look at it and go, why, that guy's Egyptian. What happened there? So chapter 4 of Zechariah. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned... And roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. So you're talking about the same angel of the Lord. We're talking about the same Christophany. He's continuing along this line of God's faithfulness now, not just to his temple, but also to Jerusalem as a city and then Israel nationally. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on its seven spouts being to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Okay, are you familiar with what a menorah is? Do you know that word menorah? Okay. That's the kind of lampstand that used to stand in the Holy of Holies. It had a central spire so that it would stand there like that and then there were arms like this those are little flames of fire, believe it or not. That would be the kind of lampstand that he saw. But then each of these bowls where the fire is have to have oil in them in order to burn. And so there was a bowl that was attached somehow, apparently above, that was full of oil that was feeding each of these lampstands. Okay, that's how much we know so far. 
what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. And then two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. So now there's two olive trees. I can't draw trees. I have no, but, okay, so there's a tree and there's a tree, one on the right and one on the left. Now, in a little while, as we get more clarification, we're going to find out that there's actually a gold piping that comes right from these trees to the top bowl. So there's a constant resource of olive oil going into the bowls and then out from the bowls to the lampstands so that the lampstand stays lit all the time because it has a constant source of oil. Get it? Okay, so that's what he's seeing. Now what he saw probably looked nothing like my drawing, but that's what he's seeing. So far it's pretty good? All right. I may sign that before the night is over. We don't know. <laughs> may go up to auction. We don't know. So he said to me, what do you see? I see, behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. And then I answered and I said to the angel that was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And the angel, you'll notice, does not answer the question. So in a little while, Zachariah is going to bring it up again. He's going to say, now, getting back to the two olive trees, now, what are those? But the angel who was speaking with me, verse 5, answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord, which I think is why I asked. <laughs> then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Okay, who's Zerubbabel? Do you remember in the book of Ezra, the first wave of Jews who came out of Persia, who came back to rebuild the temple, came with Zerubbabel. The second wave came with Ezra. The next wave that we read about came with Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was the governor there. So now we've got the priest and we've got the governor. We've got the two leaders in Jerusalem now. We've got the political governance going on and we've got the religious leadership going on. But now tell Zerubbabel because he's in the midst of rebuilding the temple. So let Zerubbabel know this. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is saying to him, it's not going to be by your military might. It's not going to be by your determination as a guy that you're going to get in there and get this built. The only way this is going to be accomplished is through my spirit. My spirit is going to run through and to you, and that's how my house is going to be rebuilt. Verse 7. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. I think all that means is there's going to be hardship along the way. There's going to be difficulties along the way, but you're going to overcome them. And he will bring forth the capstone, the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In other words, you're going to finish the work. You're going to complete the temple because you're going to put the capstone on it. And when the capstone goes on, that's the final piece of masonry to go into the temple. And then people are going to shout grace, grace to it. Then also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. So it's all going to be accomplished in the lifetime of Zerubbabel. But it's also encouraging Zerubbabel, even as the enemies are trying to stop the work. It's encouraging Zerubbabel to do it nonetheless, because you are going to finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
For who has despised the day of small things? I think I've heard that verse my whole Christian life, growing up in the church, whenever they would try to get you to do some little menial task, like, you know, can you show up on Saturday and sweep the parking lot? You know, you say, well, it's kind of below. Don't, no, don't hate the day of small things, you know. If you do the small things, someday God will give you bigger things to do or whatever. That's not what it's talking about at all in context. The temple being rebuilt was a fraction of the size of the original Solomonic temple. Originally, the temple had magnificent splendor under Solomon. But the temple that was being built under Zerubbabel was significantly smaller. And by the time they put the capstone on it, it was nothing like the the grandeur that was once there. And that's the context in which God says, don't despise the day of small things. I believe he's talking about, don't despise this temple just because it's not what it once was. This is the place where I am worshipped. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven, okay, there's another reference to the seven eyes, the stone with the seven eyes, which we said is a type of Christ. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. In other words, as soon as Zerubbabel lays down the first straight line to start rebuilding the temple, the stone with the seven eyes is going to be happy to see that starting because that means it's going to be completed and that means that the worship of God is going to continue. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I answered and I said to him, Okay, since you wouldn't answer me the first time, I just read that in. You have, to, you have to look real close for that part. What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left? So he's going back to asking that question again. And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes? Okay, so you've got the, these golden pipes even though they're in black on my drawing, these golden pipes reach from the olive tree up to the bowl, constantly feeding oil into the bowl, then feeding out of these pipes to these individual flames and individual bowls. You've got the constant resource of olive oil to keep the lamps ever burning. And he wants to know, what does that symbolize? What is that about? I see the imagery, but what does it mean? And the answer admittedly, is a tad confusing because he says, and I answered the second time and said, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this is part of the reason that I drew it up on the board, so that you can get that, this light, and the seven candlesticks, and the bowl that feeds into the candlesticks, are being fed by the two olive trees. And the two olive trees are the constant source of the oil and the light that happens here. So what are these? Well, there have been a couple different theories. Some folks have said maybe that's the two witnesses from the book of Revelation who are referred to as the two olive trees. There are some commentaries that say this is the light of God and it's being constantly fed, kept aflame by the Holy Spirit and Christ himself who become the source of the oil that's keeping the light burning or something. There's really no unanimity about what these represent. But what we know is these two olive branches are said by an angel to be two witnesses. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth and they are the source, whoever they are, they are the source of the constant oil that keeps the light of the lampstand in the holy place burning. So... 
What all that means when you put that all together? I can only get to when God does it, it gets done. When men do it, like Joshua, like the high priests, like the Levites, they have to do it as part of their work. But he says that they are just a symbol of what ultimately is to come, that Christ to come is the fulfillment of the whole Aaronic priesthood. And it's in that context that Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple, and it's in that context that this lampstand shows up. And there would have been a lampstand like that in the temple. What do you do with that? I don't know. It just is. All right, so let's go to Nehemiah. We got a little bit of time. Does anybody have anything else? Anybody want to explain the lampstand any clearer than that to us? Jeff, you got anything? Yeah, but I won't embarrass you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just move on. Yeah. I read in one commentary that it was saying that maybe it's Zerubbabel and Joshua, since they were both mentioned previously, and they're both being anointed for a particular task in the immediate context. Could be. Could be the the combination of the governor and the high priest. Both of those are responsible for continuing the law of God among Israel. And that in their provision of the law to Israel, they're feeding the lamp, the light of God in the in the temple. That can be. Since we're not told what it absolutely is, we just know it's two witnesses. But then we're told these are two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So, I place this event at the, at the end times in my mind. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why the very fact that that's picked up again in the book of Revelation shows that it has an ongoing effect that I would argue goes beyond Zerubbabel and Joshua, unless you think that Zerubbabel and Joshua are the final two witnesses. It's almighty mysterious. All right, so chapter 7 of the book of Nehemiah. I won't keep you here much longer, but chapter 7 is another one of Nehemiah's censuses. And he's going to name all the family groups that originally came under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple in the first place. Chapter 7 of Nehemiah starts, Now it came about when the wall was rebuilt... I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed and that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. That means not until noon. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. So always protection from their enemies. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, officials, and the people who were enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province. They came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city, who came with Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramaiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. And the number of the men of the people of Israel was, and I'm not going to read all this, but you can read it for yourself if you want to know that the sons of Parash were 2,172, or that the sons of Shephatiah were 372. So what he has done is he found the original Roles, the original census of the original people who had come with Zerubbabel in the first wave of Jews who returned to Jerusalem, and he recorded it for posterity in his writing. And so this is an accurate record then of who the different family groups were 
that came back originally with Zerubbabel. Go down to verse 60. Then all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were they who came up from Telmalah and Telharsha and Cherub and Adon and Immer. But they could not show their father's houses or their descendants, whether they were of Israel. So these may have been some God-fearers, or these could have been Israelites who, in the course of all the moving, just lost their records. They could not prove that their forefathers were part of Israel. So the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda were 642, and the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was named after them, these searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until the priest arose with the Urim and the Thummim. So until there was a high priest put in place, that would be Joshua. That's why we took the time to read the cleansing of Joshua in the book of Zechariah. Once he became high priest, he would have access to the Urim and the Thummim, which is the way that they would determine the will of God. They would cast lots, and the whole determining thereof was of the Lord. And that would be the way that these people who couldn't prove their ancestry that is the way that the high priest would determine whether they could, in fact, be part of the community of Israel or whether they could continue in the priesthood. All of that would be determined by God through the use of the Urim and the Thummim by the high priest. But until that could be done, they were considered unclean, so they couldn't come in the temple. And then there's a total of the people and the gifts. The whole assembly together was 42,360 people in that first wave, besides their male and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 247 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720, and some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work, and the governor gave to the treasury a 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priest garments. And some of the heads of their father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people and the temple servants and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Okay, that was all preparation for what you're about to hear from chapter 8. I got to read fast because the night is wearing thin. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in the front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of the men, women, and all that could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Milkajah, Hasham, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshalim on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people on the platform. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
That means they stood up from morning till midday while he read out the book of the law. That's the kind of respect and reverence they had for the word of God being presented to them again. After all those years that they had been in bondage, all those years they had been away from Jerusalem after the temple had been destroyed, they were just so happy to have the word of God in their presence again and to be told again, what does God say? What does God expect of us? And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Also Joshua, Bani, Zerubiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading because the book of the law would have been in Hebrew. And most of these people would have grown up speaking Aramaic. And so they had to translate, read from the original Hebrew, and then explain to the people what it originally said and what the sense of the law was. And then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. So do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Why would they be weeping? (laughs) And they realized how guilty they were. By the time they heard all the stuff they weren't supposed to be doing that they were doing, once they heard about their guilt, they wept. And yet, look at what Nehemiah says to them. This day, the law of God, the word of God has been restored to your hearing. The temple is rebuilt. The wall is completed. Jerusalem exists again. This day is holy. And sometimes I think we get this idea, this concept of, well, if it's a holy object or a holy day that we're supposed to be in such awe and reverence before it, that we're not supposed to be happy. But Nehemiah says, rejoice in this. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The holiness of God has set aside this day to instruct you, to teach you, to tell you his word. That makes it a good day. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the word of the Lord. And then he said, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's absolutely beautiful. Recognize that God is your strength and this day is holy. Now go have a party. (laughs) Go and eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and enjoy the good things that God has provided for you because this day is holy to our Lord. So don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you think about God in the Old Testament, do you think of him as the righteous, holy, judgmental God? Or do you think of him as the God of joy, the God of happiness, the God who is, who is pleased to present his people with plentiful good? I mean, that's also the God of the Old Testament. It's the God of the New Testament. That's the only God that exists. And when he is among his people, his people are to be joyous over that fact. We are to reverence him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But once you recognize who you are and who he is and what he has done for you, there is no reason for you not to be joyful in his presence. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not always going to be happy in his presence because happiness depends on happenstance and things that happen. That's where that word comes from. So you might not always be happy. But you can be joyful in the midst of whatever this world throws at you because you know that you've got the Lord on your side and the holiness of God is for you. So rejoice, be happy in it. 
Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this day is holy and do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Well, we have a much more complete word of God these days than they had those days. They just heard the law and it caused them to celebrate. I would say now that we've got the whole word of God, now that we have the whole canon of the testimony of God, shouldn't we celebrate that fact? Shouldn't we be joyous that the whole of the word of God is ours to read, to hold, to handle, to share? And notice what they did. They were so joyous in the Lord, they ate, drank, and shared with each other. That's a potluck. That's a potluck. That's a pot providence right there. They made sure that even those who had nothing had something because that joy of the Lord, that spirit of the Lord, that realization of who God is and what he's done for you ought to bring about that kind of not just joy in yourself, but the joy of giving and the joy of sharing. And like I keep saying, we have a much more complete testimony of what God has done for us through Christ. I can't think of any reason not to be joyous, not to be thankful not to be grateful for everything he's done for me. And how do I show that? Well, with the people he's given me to share my life with. And I think that's the way you ought to be too. And Tom wants stuff. So all of you, any of you, never, never mind. Any questions about that? We tied some Zechariah in with some Nehemiah tonight. And I read several Hebrew names that I may have butchered. I do read with confidence. I do. So we don't know whether you get a matter Absolutely. I'll tell you a quick story. I have a studio in my house. For many years, that's what I did for a living. I recorded books on tape and all kinds of different audio, but it was all voice audio for many different clients. I did a recording of the Bible. It was actually a project that I shared with two other studios. And we did the whole Bible on CDs to be sold in truck stops, believe it or not. And the guy that was hired, this guy had a beautiful voice, and he was hired to read the Old Testament. And he was reading through some of those sections with all those names, and he just read it with great, bold confidence. He just flew through those names like he knew what he was saying. And I said, how sure are you about those pronunciations? And he said... I figure I'll just read it like I know what I'm saying and challenge them to prove I'm wrong. So that's what I do when I read those names. I just read it out with confidence, and I figure if any of you goes, hey, wait a minute, that's actually Halathaliah or whatever. Probably true. <laughs> All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.